Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville. 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. If you are interested in any of Walter's music, WalterParks.com is a great place to look. You'll find all kinds of wonderful musical work that Walter does on that website, WalterParks.com. If you would like to, if you would like to reach out to me, JamesNave.com. I'm always open to emails and would love to hear what your story is. Where are you in the world? What are you up to? JamesNave.com. That's how you can reach me. And I'd like to thank Devine Dial for all the good work she does at WPVMFM. We appreciate everything you do, Davine, and couldn't put these shows out without, without your help. WPVMFM.org if you'd like to know more about community radio. And I'd also like to let you know that every Saturday morning, I host a writing gathering at noon Eastern Time, 10 Mountain Time. And the writing gathering is called the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week. And if you'd like to work your writing chops a bit, please feel free to, to join us. It's always open to anyone who would like to, to be there. And you can find the Zoom link for that gathering at imaginativestorm.com. That's imaginativestorm.com. It's only an hour. We usually have 20 to 23 people on the call and everybody writes a little something and often people will read it aloud. And if you don't feel like reading, you can always just be an audience member. Audiences are, are wonderful things to have when you're reading your material, as you might imagine. So if you have been listening to this show, you know that I interview people. It's a long form conversation interview with folks that, I, that I've known for a long time or I've just met and I'm just getting to know. So today I have a new person I just met. His name is Jay Hackett. And the reason I know Jay is because he was chosen as one of the upcoming TED speakers for TEDx Asheville. And I was on the selection committee. So we reviewed everybody and we have nine people coming up for the TEDx Asheville presentation in February, 2022. And so Jay Hackett is one of those people. So Jay, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Uh, glad to be here. I don't know what twice five miles means, so that's going to be my first question for you. Well, twice five miles comes from a poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge titled Kubla Khan. And in the poem, the great Khan, Kubla Khan, declares he wants this pleasure dome built. Mm -hmm. And he gives the orders to his army to build this pleasure dome. And so in order to build the Pleasure Dome, which actually is the forbidden city in Beijing to this day, because when the Mongolians invaded China and ruled China years and years ago, they built the forbidden city. And the reason it was called the, the forbidden city is because the Mongolians didn't want the Chinese to engage in their culture. So they kept it separate. Mm -hmm. And they knew that the Chinese wouldn't really appreciate 
the rowdy ways of the Saturday night parties the Mongolians had. So they built the Forbidden City. So in Coleridge's Kublai Khan, the great Khan says, build me a pleasure dome. And so in the opening of the poem, the army has the orders and they go about building the pleasure dome. And so the lines in the poem that summarize this, the lines go like this. And so twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round. And here were forests bright with sinuous reels where blossomed many an incense bearing tree. And there were forests ancient as the hills enfolding sunny spots of greenery. So within this twice five miles, which I think might be 25 square miles if you do the math, you have the sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice. And why those caves of ice are in the sunny pleasure dome, I don't know. Perhaps they're there to cool things down after the party. So that's where twice five miles comes from. And so it's a metaphor, really, to say, how far do you want to go? Are you willing to put yourself into the twice five miles of your life? Are you willing to build the pleasure dome? Are you willing to indulge yourself, if you will, in those things that you dream of? And can you carry it forward as far as you feel necessary in order to make it happen? So that's what Twice Five Miles is all about. And for you, as someone who's going to give a TED Talk, you're going to be speaking, I understand, on how people can do just that, how they build their pleasure domes. And the pleasure dome would, of course, be the dreams. And if you build your dream, there's great pleasure in doing the things you dream of doing. So let's open our conversation by having you tell us how you go about getting the people in your client base to build their dreams. What are the dreams? What are the obstacles? Folks are already seeking happiness. If we look with the metaphor of twice five miles, they're already looking for their pleasure dome. The things that people are doing, whether it is the everyday task or it's the special project, the reason you're doing what you're doing is because you believe that it'll bring you towards more happiness and away from whatever pain or whatever challenge. It doesn't matter whether you're going to work and dealing with disgruntled employee or or a difficult uh, supervisor or whether you're going on a beach and sipping Mai Tais or whatever. It doesn't really matter what you're doing whether it's the mundane or whether it is the exciting, the reason you're doing it is because you're seeking happiness. What we find in American culture is that there's such a diverse group of people across generations, across cultures, across ethnicities and gender expressions and sexual orientation, et cetera. There's just such diversity in America that everybody is seeking pleasure and everybody's seeking that pleasure dome, that happiness, and they don't really give themselves credit for it. And so we end up looking at the person that's either on TV or on the radio, the person in the spotlight, and we say, oh, they got it. They got it. And we don't give ourselves credit for the fact that when you woke up this morning, you were actually pursuing pleasure yourself and you were actually working on your life yourself. You didn't give yourself credit for it. I have the opportunity to work with people who have identified that they want to start, grow or expand a business. And these people happen to be black. And this pleasure seeking is a movement towards what they've identified as success. They want to have their own business and it's not about money and it's not about fame. They want to have their own business. They want to create their own schedule and know that this schedule is adding to their bottom line. They want to know that their gifts and talents are able to support their lifestyle 
And if the market turns in a negative way, they actually have a product they can alter or change or innovate so that they can take care of their own bills and their own needs. And that this is not dependent on somebody hiring them or firing them or laying them off. Oftentimes we mistake the entrepreneur as an arrogant person or a person that is uncommitted or a person that just wants to be a boss. And that's not the case. It is a person who just wants to manage their life their way. And, and I think that we have to give space for humans to just be humans, just acknowledge that everybody is seeking happiness. In your client base, do you work with people who are local Ashevillians or do you have a range that goes all over the country? And do you find people who come to you have different motivations based on their backgrounds? Yeah, absolutely. Now, I do work with people all over the world, but this particular thing that I'll be talking about is a project in Asheville. And so we've been searching the Black business history of Asheville, the Black business history of Asheville, not in general Black history, but the Black business history in Asheville as far back as 1835. And we've been using that as a platform to inspire current Black entrepreneurs that currently have an idea, but not yet turned it into a business. And so we're taking people from zero up to their first $200,000. And the idea is that folks have the guts, they have the drive, they have all the ingenuity, but they lack the resources or they lack the connections. What we find is that they're seeking happiness through business. They're coming from crazy environments. For example, this year, we've enrolled 68 Black businesses in Black Wall Street. Of those 68, over half of them lived last year on less than $20,000 a year. So just imagine you have a person that is believing in their own ability to create a business, but they're living so far below poverty. You get what I'm saying? And they're having to navigate all of what life has to offer on a regular basis, and they're navigating it with much, much less money than everybody else. In fact, the state of Black Asheville, uh, led by Dr. Dwight Mullen, that research reports that a Black person in Asheville makes $26,000 a year on average, compared to a white person's average median income is $46,000. And so you have this skewed negatively against a certain group of people, and they were born into this. These disparities are real, and you don't escape them because you have an idea. You get what I mean? Just like, you know, you can't escape your reality just because you have an idea. I can't escape mine. We just have to navigate that world and trust that this dream that we have is worth pushing for. For the woman that believes in herself as an entrepreneur, she's managing what it is to be in a female body and still believe in her dream. For the man that's an entrepreneur, he's navigating what it is to be in a male body and still believe in his dream. So everybody has to overcome something and still believe in their dreams. Through cooperative economics, we have a Monday night meeting every week. We're sitting and we're talking about what goes on in life. And we can complain and people fuss and cuss. But at the end of the day, you are still responsible for your own greatness. You are responsible for living your dream. You're responsible for building your pleasure dome. And you can't put it on anybody else. Dr. Dwight Mullins was a professor at UNCA for a long time, I believe. And yeah, does he yeah, still yeah. hold that position? Well, he's emeritus. He's retired now. He's there for 30 years. And he was my professor. I came to Asheville in 1998, and I came here as a college student. I came here because it was beautiful. I'd be remiss without 
of course, acknowledging how I got to Asheville, of course, was college. That year in 1998, I had been honored as American Red Cross Volunteer of the Year. That's when I met president of the American Red Cross, Elizabeth Dole in Salisbury, North Carolina. And I did not know that she was a super famous person. And I met her mother, Miss Libby. They invited me to speak for her 90th birthday party. And Elizabeth Dole found out that I was going to go to the military because I could not afford to go to college. And she said, well, if he wants to go to college, I'll pay for it. The only requirement was that I had to choose a school in North Carolina. So I visited schools and applied. I got accepted to UNCA and Chapel Hill. And of course, UNCA was better. We outranked Chapel Hill for all those people. Just eat your heart out. Asheville was beautiful. Just recently, Senator Bob died. And our condolences are with uh, Miss Elizabeth Dole and her family. I'm grateful for all of the things that brought me here to Asheville. And uh, when I got there, Dr. Dwight was my professor. And he told me how to read a book. He told me that you don't start reading the book on page one. You actually start reading at the copyright page because you want to know when it was written, why it was written, who published it, why would they publish such a book? What is the tone of, of what's going on in the world? And then that author's voice while he's writing. Well, the reason I know that Dr. Dwight Mullins was a UNCA teacher, I graduated from UNCA as an adult returning student in 1985. I went back to college when I was 31 and graduated when I was 35. And Dr. Dwight Mullins came to UNCA during the time I was there. He was a new political science professor. I was studying international relations at the time. So I remember when he came. So when you said Dr. Dwight Mullins, I had a, an image of him as a younger man. He's now, as you said, re retired. That's why I wondered if he was still at UNCA. So you and I graduated from the same college. And I know exactly what you mean about the experience of going to school. I went back as an adult returning student. I had flunked out of Brevard College when it was a junior college in Brevard, North Carolina, when I was 20 and really felt awful about it for my entire 20s and decided I would go back and see if I could get a degree in my 30s. So I did. So I value education. I think of an education as something that you do to allow yourself to expand toward that pleasure dome for the right. pleasure of it, really. And then right. there are lots of benefits as well. As I'm sure you know, these entrepreneurs, do they have an age range or are they all over the place. They're really all over the place. We do have what's called Black Wall Street Junior, where there are entrepreneurs that are under age 18. Um, one of them actually just turned 18 a few weeks ago. Uh, he published a book just this week. I think he crossed a thousand. And so we're really proud of him and excited for him. The folks in the cohort, they range in age from as young as I believe 14 up to upper, 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 upper ages. Kind of runs the gamut. So you were mentioning Asheville's Black community and its business involvement throughout the years, going back to 1835, I believe you said. Well, yes. that was long before the Civil War. And Asheville at that time probably was just a mountain settlement. And yet there were Black entrepreneurs in Asheville back when Asheville was a mountain settlement. And it was, I believe, doing much of its commerce by way of the barges coming up and down the French Broad River rather than any kind of highway through Asheville like I-40 and I-26 now. How did that all happen? When we look at entrepreneurship, we look at it a little bit differently. And I am looking at it through the eyes of a Black man. If you think about what it is to own a business, 
then when we look back at history, far back as 1835, we realize that we're in a time before slavery was abolished, when slavery was actually happening. And we know that it did happen here. And so people had skills, talents, and abilities, but they were not being paid for it. When we discuss Asheville's Black business history, we include those folks that were held as slaves. So you have Tempe Avery, for example. Um, she was born a slave and she delivered babies. It's the equivalent of a modern day OBGYN, though she didn't go to college for it. She didn't have respect for it as being a medical professional in the way that other doctors were. But she was skillful in delivering babies, so skillful that white folks paid her and she saved money and was able to not only be free, but also to own property over acre property in what is known as a Montford area today. And that whole area used to be predominantly black families living there. So when we look at her, we, we want to acknowledge that she's also an entrepreneur in as much as the doctors of that day were entrepreneurs, though she didn't have the title, may not have had the respect because of how culture and society was at the time. So we want to think about what industries did black people participate in? Um, and when we look at it true to form, we see that black folks played a part in everything that Asheville had then and everything that Asheville has now. Uh, and we're hoping that as we dig up and connect the dots, that folks will have great appreciation for each other in this wonderful mountain that we call home. What would be another story or two of the shoulders that people now stand on? In the more recent history, you have E.W. Pearson. He was the owner of the baseball team, the Royal Giants, uh, all black baseball team. He also had a grocery store in what is today the Burton Street area. Today, the Burton Street community embraces the Pearson plan as a citywide community development strategy because E.W. Pearson had this idea that if you can just honor what people are already doing and do well and, and connect them with others that need what they have to offer, then it's a way for everybody in the community to enjoy life together. He was actually considered the mayor of Black Asheville, and he did it through entrepreneurship and connecting the dots for people. They're embracing his plan. I mean, so much so that when the highway wanted to expand and that highway would have taken away houses, because of the momentum from the grassroots level, people agreed that we should save the houses. If you're going to expand, expand in some other way, but let's save the houses. Pearson Drive in Montford would be named after this man, I would think, right? That same family. When you think back on all of these entrepreneurs in Asheville and reflect on the momentum Asheville has because of the contributions all of these people made for well over a century, and then you compare Asheville to other towns, do you find that Asheville's entrepreneurial community was more expansive and engaged than other towns, or is it similar to other towns throughout the South? It's weird because Asheville is small, but it was actually targeted. If we look back at urban renewal, for example, I want to get this quote, and I'm going to share it with you and the listeners. By the time of urban renewal, Southside was the city's premier Black business district. And Southside is the area around McDowell, South French Broad, et cetera. Southside was the city's premier Black business district, surrounded by a large residential neighborhood. At over 400 acres, the urban renewal project here was the largest in the Southeastern United States. I wonder why it was the largest. You get what I'm saying? The scale of the devastation here was unmatched. In the East Riverside area, said the late Reverend Wesley Grant, we have lost more than 1,000 homes 
six beauty parlors, five barbershops, five filling stations, 14 grocery stores, three laundromats, eight apartment houses, seven churches, three shoe shops, two cabinet shops, two auto body shops, one hotel, five funeral homes, one hospital, and three doctor's offices. And the Reverend Grant's church still stands at Shocktown Street. Why is it that urban renewal here was so big? Why did they take so much? It's because I believe that when cities are planning, they're planning 20 and 50 years ahead of time. And the growth and the prosperity that Asheville experiences today is not by accident. It is by design. And there are former powers that were in control then that did not want to see everybody as equal. It did not want to give everybody a chance. And so they looked at the land, they looked at the opportunity, and they decided that it could be better used if they would displace these people that happened to be Black because they wanted to make progress in the city, urban renewal. And then the Black folks were never able to regain their footing. So where my coffee shop is, there used to be 34 Black businesses in that area. And today there are only four. Mine is the only one that has its own brick and mortar. The others are shared spaces with artists. And so the advantage that Asheville has is that it knows how to make momentum. It knows how to move forward. The disadvantage is that it has historically moved forward without including Black people. So it's almost like a greenhouse. It's here and it's concentrated and it just has not been equitable. But things are changing. You know, they're great opportunities and I'm glad to be part of the change. Tell us about your coffee house. Grind is the name of it, not the grind, just grind. Of course, that has a double meaning. Grind is how you grind coffee. Grind also means to work hard. It takes hard work no matter who you are, no matter where you are. Grind is Asheville's first Black-owned coffee shop, and that's just based on the record. The record does not show any other Black-owned coffee shop, but I've got a funny little feeling that somebody Black owned a coffee shop before. Maybe it wasn't registered. (laughs) Our mission is that it's more than just coffee. We're here to support entrepreneurs and leaders. We want people to come and collaborate. And we opened Grind in the middle of the pandemic, knowing that it was an uphill battle, but we honored the Black business history. And so we have posters and depictions of former Black business owners that would inspire us if they could do it with what they had working against them. Certainly we can do it. And for the entrepreneur, no matter what color your skin is, if people have done it before you, you can do it. You just got to keep showing up. And where have you located this? Oh, it's shop? at 346 Depot Street, right in the middle of today, what is called the River Arts District. Historically, it is called Southside. And the people that were that lived there and born there and have been there before Urban Renewal, they still call it Southside. Asheville calls it the River Arts District. And it's an amazing place. But we're glad to be there. And are you by chance renting your building from Hetty Fisher and Randy Shaw? I am. I am. I've known them both for a long, long time. And aren't they amazing? I'll tell you, I remember when I first met Hetty. Now, I was there waiting at the door when uh, they had the for lease sign up because Asheville Arts Council used to be there. And so I'm waiting. I'm like, man, this I don't know who these landlords are. They're not going to let us. Uh, rent this building. At the same time, the uh, the demonstrations were happening downtown, craziness that happened with the police. I mean, it was just a real tense moment in Asheville. And here I am about to try to open a coffee shop and I don't even drink coffee. <laughs> it's crazy. So I'm sitting there and out pops this lady with this curly hair and she's just all jazzed up and she's like, hey, 
and it was heady. I was tiptoeing around it and I was asking about the price and everything and trying to sense if she would allow me to be there. That's a challenge that is pretty common in the Black community that we have to navigate. Do people want us there? Like, is it going to be an uphill battle? But it was none of that with Hetty. She said, oh, no, I want you here. She said, we need this here. And uh, and she was not afraid to also say um, there should be more Black businesses in this neighborhood. And I really appreciate Hetty for that. And so anybody that that's a friend of hers, uh, I've come to, to claim her as a friend, but anybody that knows her, uh, just reach out to her, give her a little hell today, and uh, just let her know that Jay Hackett said something about her. People who listen to this show hear it in Asheville, they also hear it in Taos, New Mexico, and they know me to be an Asheville native. I met Hetty in 1979 when she first moved to Asheville, so I've known her. Come everything um, happened before I was born? Well, because everything <laughs> happened before we were all born, because everything has been happening since the beginning of time, Jay. And so I met Hetty in 1979, and Hetty and I've known each other all of this time. And and then when she met Randy, who is a well-respected artist around the globe, actually, they combined forces and started building a small real estate empire, really. And they started with rental houses for individuals and then moved into the commercial part of rental. And they own buildings all over town. And that's why I knew when you said you were in the River Arts District that you likely were renting from Hetty and Randy because they bought all those buildings. And really, uh, they made the River Arts District what it is today because of the choices they made, which brings us back to this idea of building the Pleasure Dome. And it brings us back to the idea of each person taking the responsibility to do something they want to do and engaging with the other people who have the same philosophy and I know Hetty and Randy have that philosophy and they're well-respected throughout the community because of it. And so as a leader, how does the environment work for black entrepreneurs now versus back when the city leaders in Asheville just wiped everything out? I remember I grew up in Asheville. I remember the environment back in the fifties. I remember the YMI center. I remember when, they decided to just rip things apart and build the interstate through and do all the renewal. They called it renewal, but other people may have had different words for it. Oh, it was devastation. It was devastation. So the atmosphere now works because it is the atmosphere we're in. We all are born when we're supposed to be born, right? And so I was born in 1980 and my reality is my reality. And for the folks that live through what Asheville offered them, their reality is their reality. And what I find is that if you move towards your pleasure and your peaceful place, and I'm moving towards my pleasure, my peaceful place, because we're on paths, uh, those paths will cross and it's going to have a ripple effect in the future. Let's take Hetty and Randy, for example. They decided to take a chance on an area and in a, in a building, it was not very pretty at the time. You know what I mean? It, it was not then what it is now. And as artists and as dreamers and believers in, in vision, they just set out to do something knowing that eventually something good would happen. And because they did it, you know, way back then, it crossed paths with a young man that's going to open a coffee shop. You get what I'm saying? And the momentum is already there. So while they're working to move to their happy place, I'm working to move towards my happy place. And there's this good intersection. If folks can think about that in their normal lives, like don't think about changing the world. Don't think about changing lives. Just, just move towards your happiness and, and things are really going to fall into place. 
Like take the weight of the world off of you and just think about what you have to offer today and in this moment and do that. The atmosphere today in Asheville, I'm grateful for all the people that did the grunt work. I'm glad I didn't have to do it. I'm really grateful for all of even my forefathers that lived during those crazy times, especially in the Jim Crow South, because I'm telling you and everybody that's listening, I ain't built for the foolishness. So like that kind of stuff, they were able to deal with it. And I'm grateful that they did. I could not. But what's going on in Asheville today is a little different. We have great opportunities, but there are different types of challenges. And it just requires a different strategy. It requires that people come together and talk and get an understanding of each other. It requires that we take a look at policies and think about how those policies can be changed to be more inclusive, not only of people of different skin color, but people of different sexual identity and orientation, people of different gender and people of different physical abilities, that we take a look at why is the educational gap the way that it is? What do teachers need and why are teachers so low paid? Like if we want the students to learn and folks are required to go to school, shouldn't we incentivize the teachers to be excited about going to work? It should not be that teachers qualify for public assistance and welfare. Those types of things should be looked at. And it happens when people can say, all right, what happened happened, but what can we do now? In the business community in Nashville, I'm really excited that we have folks like Mountain BizWorks that have funding. And not only do they have funding, but they have the education that if a person wants to start a business, they can take the class to learn more about the business. And then at the end of the class, that's funding to help you implement what you just learned. Programs like Eagle Market Streets Development Corporation, where they renovated the old Del Cardo Hotel and now have the Eagle Marketplace apartment. So downtown, where one-bedroom apartments are like $1,200, you have folks downtown that uh, were formerly homeless or, or lived with an income less than poverty, uh, under the poverty level, but they can afford to live downtown because of Eagle Market Streets Development Corporation, the old Del Cardo Hotel uh, that still gives honor, pays homage to the Black business history. And so grateful for the YMI with their current capital campaign and Leaf Global Arts as they're celebrating music and arts from all around the world. Like Asheville has a whole lot going for it. And I'm really lucky and blessed to be here. And, and I think that it just requires that we keep our eyes open and the folks keep talking and keep navigating, keep negotiating. It's working. It really is working, but it's going to take all of us staying together. Well, I appreciate your comment about the area around what is called the block and leaf global arts. I was there in the beginning of the leaf project with Jennifer Pickering and I've been on the advisory committee oh, ever man. since. And I'm still working closely with Jennifer and those people who have listened to this show know that I've uh, hosted the poetry slam at the leaf uh -huh. festival every time since its beginning. So I have a lot of respect for all the work that everybody has done. And I just interviewed a Stephanie Swepson Twitty for this show okay. as well. Mention a bit about the club that was there, the gathering place. Now, of course, I'm not old enough to remember. Well, you're too young to remember before. anything. I'm too young for anything. <laughs> and uh, when I became an executive director here, Jennifer reached out and we would have these executive director talks. Of course, we can't say anything about them publicly, but man, she gets it and she was always there for me. And I just hope that I was there for her as well. I'm so proud of Leaf and how it's grown over the years. Uh, doing amazing work. And Jenny is a great, 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 great colleague of mine. So uh, the block, the Black community could not go very many places. And as we say, let your hair down. 
And so the block was that. And so you got these, these restaurants and these clubs, people just get dressed up in their Sunday's best and go for a night out on the town. And you could go to the Del Cardo, grab a table, enjoy music, live music. And then people traveling from all over would just come. You got performances. As, as I hear it, Asheville actually hosted Aretha Franklin and James Brown, some really big names, not in the Citizen Times. And it's, you know, we didn't have internet. When you think about a, a group of folks that could not celebrate in other places, the block was a place where they could celebrate who they were. And they could do it in a in an area that was safe and that was by them and for them. And right there on the corner of Eagle Market Streets is the Del Cardo. And I think that Stephanie, they did a great job of maintaining the original look of it and then extending it up. It's a wonderful, fascinating place. As a matter of fact, one of the Black business owners in the Black Wall Street cohort, he rents an apartment there. Uh, he's saving up to buy a house, just got approved for a mortgage. You may be interested to know when I was growing up in Asheville, I grew up in the 60s. I was born in 1949 and grew up in the 50s. And then by the time the 60s rolled around, I was a teenager. And of course, I did what teenagers always do. And one of the things I did was to go to a club called the Brown Derby. And it was on Biltmore Avenue, four doors down from the Fine Arts Theater, which at the time was the X-rated cinema of the town and not a very good place for anybody great moral character to go and i would sneak into the brown derby when i was 16 uh -huh. and the reason i was able to do that later found out the brown derby was a joint that was also doing betting in the back and i remember seeing james brown at the Brown Derby. Oh, and the reason why the Brown Derby is interesting, and I just made this connection talking to you now, Jay, is that the Brown Derby's back door goes right into the neighborhood, which is the block. I just put it together that James Brown and Aretha Franklin and all of these legendary musicians would, would play at the Brown Derby, and then they would go down to the Del Cardo. They probably played down there all night. So yeah. the Brown Derby's um, entrance in the back was into the block area. Talk about vitality back in the day. It was certainly vital. So when you grew up, where did you grow up? From Philadelphia. So I grew up in North Philly. But my family, the Hackett's, they are from Rowan County in North Carolina, a small town named Salisbury, actually Granite Quarry, right outside of Salisbury, North Carolina. And we actually know the family that owned our family uh, during times of slavery. They are the Hackett's from London. My great-great-grandmother uh, was, was the slave that was chosen for the man that was the master. And so he would lay with her and created my great-great-grandpa. When the master's wife died, we know that he never remarried and he left all of his land to her. And that land back then was called Hackett Town in Granite Quarry. My grandfather and great-grandparents were not readers or writers. They were uh, masons. And so they built things out of granite, uh, brick masons. And my grandpa is an inventor. And so that's where my family is from. The Hackett's are from Rowan County, Carolina. And so when I came to North Carolina and started to learn about my family history, um, it was fascinating. Of course, it carried with it some tears but also brings me to a place of resolve that um, I, I know part of where I come from and I know why I'm here. And so as a black man with green eyes, I kind of knew that there's some other diversity in there. 
And then when I come up to Asheville and start to see and hear about the Black, Black history here, I start to find out that as different as our histories are, there's this common thread that like people end up making it happen no matter where they start. As bad as things are, humanity really figures out a way to enjoy life. And, and I'm really into that. You also coach these people who come to you. That's a yeah. big part of what your work is about. Yeah, yeah. You have a vast history. You have a legacy. You have studied your, your background. And then you also have the experience of the Northern upbringing mm -hmm. as well. And you bring all of that to bear in the work that you're doing now with Black Wall Street. So what kind of techniques do you use or how do you approach people who come to you with a limited awareness of their own history? How do you mentor them to expand their thinking around their own background? Mm -hmm. Well, first, I, I learned the Pygmalion effect from an organizational psychologist. You got these students and then somebody tells the teacher that 20% of them are high performing. And then they come back and do a test at the end, only to find that those 20% end up outscoring everybody else. Their test scores, are they're advanced, they're, they're doing great, but only to find out that they were not necessarily high performing. There's a random selection. And what happened was that because the teacher expected more from them, the teacher nurtured them, gravitated towards them and taught them and expected more. And it speaks to expectation. When you expect people to do wonderful things, they do. So expectation is more than history. When we coach people in the Black Wall Street movement, we start off expecting great things as, as challenging and as bad and as unfair and as wrong, as jacked up as Black history in Asheville has been. We are all still responsible for greatness. We are all still responsible for our own ideas. And we're all responsible, as we say, to build our pleasure dome. We are responsible for that. And so there are a few things I tell people and those that I mentor most closely, they get so frustrated when I tell them, number one, the thing that's going to stop you is not that there's a blockade. It's because there's a distraction. Are you going to be distracted because of the stuff that might be good, but not change your condition? Are you going to be distracted by somebody talking bad about you? Are you going to be distracted by somebody talking good about you? So number one, don't be distracted. Number two, do what you say. And if you can't, then say something. And so these are very simple principles. Actually, that one I learned when I was a waiter at O'Charlie's after being a waiter at Waffle House. Do what you say. And if you can't, then say something. A very simple principle, but you got to do it. And another one uh, that I tell people, you've got to have the type of tenacity that says, I refuse to give up. There's got to be something inside of you that says, I am determined to finish this product. It doesn't matter if you're knitting a sweater, sewing a quilt, designing a clock, building a factory, taking a rocket to the moon. It doesn't matter what it is that you're doing. You have to set out with the determination. I will not stop until I finish. Goals are written in stone, but plans are written in sand. It doesn't matter if I have to make an adjustment in the meantime. I still got to get there. You get what I'm saying? And so we coach. We complain, we cry, we shout, we fuss. But at the end of the day, you got to get it together because we got business to take care of. You have been working with these people now, and I can tell by the way you talk, you have massive enthusiasm for this. And I suspect it's because you've had some good successes with some of the people you've worked with. As we close, could you offer us at least one story of somebody that you're very proud of who has gone on to do remarkable things? I'm extremely proud. There's a teacher in the cohort 
and she designed lotion for her and her children um, based on natural products because they have eczema. When we found out about it, he's like, well, why don't you be part of Black Wall Street? She's like, but I don't have a business. We're like, yes, you do. Right there, the lotion. So she made the lotion, a big old jar of it, the way that she would normally make it for her house, right? And we were like, well, if you just make it a little bit smaller and just set your prices to the price that they charge at the store, then you could make a little bit more money. So she did that. And then she sold a little bit more of that. Then because we have so many tourists that come, she decided to make something a little smaller that could fit into a travel case so that people could take it on the airplane. And she actually sold more and made more money from the smaller item than she did from the bigger item. She's got a daughter first year in college. And she's earned enough revenue this year to pay for her, her daughter's college tuition. And this type of thing is happening all the time at Black Wall Street. As a matter of fact, I just came from a meeting where I was presenting and we ran the numbers. All of the numbers are not in. But just this year, the members of Black Wall Street cohort have generated over a million dollars in revenue. That creates over $1.6 million in community impact. And it happened because people decided to honor history and build wealth together. That's happening right here in Asheville. And what's the name of the lotion company and the woman who runs it? Lakeisha Lee, Lovely Naturals. Uh, we are so, so super proud of her. The business owners that are part of Black Wall Street, you can go to the website, blackwallstreetabl.com, and you'll meet the business owners. They're telling their stories um, and you'll be able to meet them. I mean, if anybody wanted to come down to the building, uh, the city just leased us a building. Uh, so we have a permanent physical space. Come on down to Eight River Arts Place and meet the Black business owners that are part of the cohort. And you'll be able to meet them and hear their stories about triumph and overcoming, how everybody is building their own pleasure dome, and we interact together. And as we move to the top of the hour, or can you give us some thoughts on your upcoming TED Talk? I do have this story that I want to tell. And I want to tell this story about entrepreneurship. And the story of entrepreneurship is not about money. It's really about spirit, and it's about resolve. It's about that unknown and unspoken thing that keeps folks going. I've been able to research it. I've been running some casual experiments and, uh, and I wanna share that with you. And I've got this funny little feeling that people are more similar than they give themselves credit for and that the entrepreneur is not the one that's just chasing a pot of gold. They're all just trying to build a pleasure dome. I think you might be right about that, Jay. I think we all are trying to find our way to those happy places. And we do have a lot of obstacles in our way. And one of the things I've appreciated about this conversation, I've appreciated that you acknowledge the obstacles, that you are aware of the obstacles and you understand that we all have those obstacles. Mm -hmm. And yet you are coaching people to take those obstacles and use what they can about the obstacles to transform the obstacles into something of value for them that they can move forward and leave the obstacles behind. That's right. That's, that's right. I firmly believe that there's greatness inside of everybody. Uh, and the weird thing is I don't believe in motivation. I think that you have to show up with the desire and then you cross path with somebody that can light the fire. You've got to come with something and there's something great inside of everybody. They just haven't given it a chance yet. Um, and the best coaches are the ones that tell you to run a little faster, to push a little harder and to not make excuses and not to accept defeat. We see it on the football fields and on the basketball courts. I think we, we need a little bit more of that in life. Um, and especially as it regards entrepreneurship, uh, there are great things out there. People have awesome ideas and, and our world is getting better. 
but it's only going to continue to get better if people give themselves a chance. We got to push. Right. I really appreciate that. And I think maybe you're right about the motivation. Motivation would be a byproduct of the desire, a byproduct of the need to find the happiness and to reach the goals that you dream about. And once you have that in place, then you're motivated to go do it. I mean, an object at rest will stay at rest until a force moves it. Now, after you're in motion, let, let's do something. You, you got it. You got to come with some guts. We can tell you what to do. Like we can direct you, but you got to want it. You know, sometimes I think people stop wanting things like you got to desire something better. Come on out the humdrum. Wake up. Well, Jay Hackett, thank you for waking us up on this conversation. I really do appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to be with us. And I wish you all the luck in the world when you step on that TED stage, TEDx Asheville. But I have a feeling you will do just fine. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> So thanks, Jay. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. And uh, y'all take care. So there you go, my friends. A good conversation with Jay Hackett about being an entrepreneur, a bit about his coffee shop, Grind, in Asheville, as well as the project that he's working with also in Asheville. If you would like to know more about what Jay is up to in Asheville with Black Wall Street, the website is blackwallstreetavl.com. That's blackwallstreetavl.com. And AVL is the airport code for Asheville. So when you fly into Asheville, the code you'll see on your ticket is AVL. And when you get there, maybe you'll take a little trip down to the south side area and go to Jay's Coffee Shop, Grind, in the River Arts District. When Jay mentioned he had opened his coffee shop, Grind, in the middle of a pandemic, I was impressed. Opening a business is difficult no matter when you do it. And, of course, when you factor in a pandemic, it makes it even more difficult. That said, a coffee shop is probably one of the best businesses you can open. Why do I think that? Well, I've never owned a coffee shop. I can say this, though. I've spent hours and hours and hours in coffee shops all over the country and when I walk into a coffee shop and smell that aroma and see the people sitting at the tables with their laptops open working away making whatever dreams come true they can make building their pleasure domes as Jay referenced in our conversation which is based on Kubla Khan the poem written by Samuel Taylor Coleridge going into these coffee shops and building their pleasure domes socializing getting to know people making plans writing poetry having business meetings daydreaming listening to the stories other people tell sometimes strangers sometimes close friends sitting face to face over a couple of cups of warm coffee just talking about what their lives mean right now, finding meaning. I suppose you could say a coffee shop might be the place where finding meaning is the most important part of the interaction that happens in a coffee shop, and that meaning emerges from all different kinds of interactions. You've probably spent a fair amount of time in coffee shops yourself and know exactly what I'm talking about. And when I say find meaning, I'm really thinking about the interactions we have with each other on a simple level. Nothing really important or highbrow about it. Finding meaning for me is when 
I sit down with someone, like I said, over a couple of warm cups of coffee and just hear what they have to tell me, to hear their story and find out more about what they're up to. You've probably had a similar experience sitting across warm cups of coffee. You've probably found meaning when someone shares a troubled time with you or found meaning when someone shares a joyous time with you. Maybe a new baby has arrived and you learn the name of the new baby there in the coffee shop. Or perhaps someone tells you about a, a car they just bought, or their friend moved away, or their friend moved to town, or their parents are now retiring and moving to the ocean. Who knows what it is? Whatever the exchange is, there's meaning in the stories we tell each other. And that's why I absolutely love coffee shops, because a lot of the exchanges I've had over the years are simple exchanges. And when I'm through with the exchange and I walk out onto the street, into the city, wherever I am, I feel renewed. Over the years, I've lost track of how many coffee shops I've been in and hung out in and talked in and found renewal in. Today, even the smallest little town has usually one coffee shop or some version of what we know is a coffee shop like what you would see in the River Arts District at Grind, Jay's Coffee Shop. That wasn't always the case. Sure, there were coffee shops in the bigger cities like Cafe Reggio, established in 1927 on McDougal Street in the West Village in New York City, Ografio Coffee Roasting in San Francisco, which was founded in 1935. And if you really want to travel in time, let's go back to the London Coffee House in Boston, which opened in 1689. But it's only been in the last 25 years that coffee shops as we know them today have begun to play such a central role in our socializing on a regular basis. So back in the 70s and the 80s and even into the 90s, coffee shops like the ones in New York, Boston, San Francisco were there and thriving. But if you were traveling around America during that time, you probably wouldn't be able to just pop into a coffee shop in almost any town and get yourself a latte, espresso, or a cappuccino and go on your merry way. Funny enough, when Jay was talking about his entrepreneurial zeal for his coffee shop grind, I was reminded of my entrepreneurial zeal back when I was in my 20s. I opened what amounted to a do-it-yourself pizza restaurant in a frame house just west of the Inland Waterway in Riceville Beach, North Carolina. The bulk of our customers were people who were coming and going to the beach. They would go to the beach, stop by the pizza port, pick up a pizza pie and head to the ocean and have their lunch, or upon the return they would be hungry after swimming all day in the Atlantic Ocean. They would stop by, get a pizza and go home and have their dinner. So it was a bit of a built-in market and I was a very happy little entrepreneur until I sold the place to my business partner because I wanted to go travel around the country and see what else was out there. I didn't know coffee shops were out there. I didn't know what was out there, but I wanted to go see, and so that's exactly what I did. Sadly, the pizza port burned down a few years later. Don't know who started the fire. I don't know why it burned down. Maybe the partner I sold it to had some sort of problem and he collected the insurance. Who knows? Anyway, the place fell to the ground in flames, but that was a long time after I sold it. I was sad to hear that news. Now, the reason I bring this up is because I think so much about those days 
in the pizza business. I have to confess, I did entertain the idea of opening a coffee shop even while I was running the pizza restaurant. So I had that idea a long, long time ago. I don't know where it came from. Maybe I just liked the idea of drinking coffee because when I was a young boy, my grandmother served coffee to me when I would go down to her house and, and read the funny papers on Saturday morning. So I've always had some kind of coffee relationship in my life, and that may explain why I was thinking about opening a coffee shop. I got serious about it for a little while and really thought it might be a great idea. I was in Paris in 1985 for the first time to visit a friend of mine whom I'd known when I was in college. And he had a little spot, a little apartment. He still has it even to this day on a street called Rue Dauphine. And down at the end of the street was a cafe called Le Bussy. And the first morning upon my arrival, I, I got up and went to Le Bussy for a, a coffee. Now, I had never really seen the way one of those espresso machines worked, and I was fascinated by it. The machine was a really large one, and it made all kinds of noise, and it steamed, and it carried on, and every time the coffee was served, the person who received the coffee paid their money and smiled. And I thought, you know, if I could get that machine back to North Carolina, maybe to Asheville, and set up a little coffee shop, I would really have something. So when I finished my vacation in Paris, I had a few more coffees at Le Bussy before I came back to the States. I did think about how to open the coffee shop. Where would I put it? What would it look like? How would I construct it? But I decided not to because I was also working on another entrepreneurial project called Poetry Alive, which is a business that I did complete and follow through and I memorized hundreds and hundreds of poems to perform for school students. So instead of serving coffee to my friends in the coffee shop that I never opened, I was serving poetry written by other poets to students all over the country. Another kind of steamy proposition, if you will, the smoke rose off of the poems we performed on the stage. Well, I'm not so sure about how much steam rose off the poems we performed for the students, but we did have a good time doing it. So, no coffee shop, poetry instead. Of course, in the Poetry Alive business, I had to travel around a lot, which means I was able to find all kinds of interesting coffee shops along the way. That was in the 80s and the early 90s. By 1995, coffee shops were rather well established all over the country. I remember Bean Streets was the first coffee shop in Asheville. It opened in the early 90s, and when I first visited Taos, New Mexico, I went to Cafe Taza. So from 1995 on, the coffee shop phenomenon in America was reasonably well established, and regardless of where I went, I could usually find a spot. Not all the towns. The little towns didn't start getting coffee shops until the late 90s and then the early 2000s. But in 95, you could find coffee shops in a fair number of locations. And I would always go in and it would be the same vibe, the same atmosphere, the same group of people, but not doing the same thing that they do today. Sitting around, talking, having cups of coffee and getting to know each other which is what happens at Grind in the River Arts District at Jay's Coffee Shop every day, or the coffee shops in Taos like Elevation or Soul Cafe or the World Cup or Coco's or Pete's Coffee Shop.
So maybe sometime in the future, our paths will cross at a coffee shop somewhere in America or somewhere in the world. Who knows? On that note, we've arrived at the top of the hour. Thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. If you're interested in more of Walter's music, Davine Dial, thank you for managing WPVM-FM. We couldn't do it without you. And if you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com. It's a good way to reach out to me. You can also find more about what I'm up to at my website, JamesNave.com. If you'd like to join me on a Saturday morning writing romp, I host one every Saturday morning, noon Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Mountain Time. It's called the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week. We gather on Zoom and people write. So if you would like to join me and my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, the doors are always open. We would love to have you. ImaginativeStorm.com for your Zoom link. So once again, thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio. I do appreciate your attention. Maybe our paths will cross in a coffee shop sometime, perhaps even grind in the River Arts District. Who knows? I can say this, if we do run into each other, I hope we sit down and share a couple of cups of coffee and get to know each other. Wouldn't that be dandy? Okay, that's about it for now. Time to move along with the day. Once again, thanks for listening, and I do hope you tune in again next time. And until then, I will catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.